this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to the Reluctant Agilist. Eric Tucker is here. Eric, say hi to everybody. Hi to everybody. Uh, the new Scrum Guide is out, and we're going to focus on that. Uh, just a couple of ground rules. I'm going to try to find positive things to say, which I'm struggling with right now. And Eric is not allowed to use obscene language unless he does it in a Boston accent. Oh, you don't want to open that Pandora's box, man. <laughs> I don't want to go there. So uh, before we start, Eric, could you tell these fine people who you are? Yeah, I'm Eric Tucker. I'm from the Boston area. Been uh, a CST for about three years. I've been involved in Agile for about 16 years and um, love this stuff because I know it works. All right. Cool. And your background before that was? I was a technical waterfall project manager. As was I. Okay. So that's that's the lens that I look at all this stuff through. And <laughs> I want to feel positive. There's a lot of good things in here. I'm glad they updated it. It's smaller, which is nice. I've had a bunch of people comment on the way it's written. I... I am somebody who finds potholes everywhere, though. So, so how would you characterize your response to this document at this point in it's time? Mixed, for sure. Um, they're they're pushing a little bit of what I would deem to be my comfort zone on some of the things, but I also see value in other things that they've changed. Uh, I feel like the conversational tone is is well. Actually, I said that wrong. I feel like the tone is much more conversational than prescriptive in the Scrum Guide. They, I think they use the term they're softening the language, which I did definitely feel. And it felt more like they get into some of the why Scrum does things the way that, that it does. Whereas in previous um, editions of the Scrum Guide, I felt like it was more, this is what it is. It was very heavily on the what, as opposed to the what okay. and the why. So that why, I mean, in the same way that we'd wanna have uh, a vision statement, or I guess now a product goal that would explain why we're doing the thing, understanding intent is going to guide a lot of the behavior. If we know that it'll help, help us kind of formulate a response mm -hmm. that supports that. Yeah. Yeah. And I find that a lot of the folks that I interact with either in class or in coaching engagements, you still have to fundamentally convince them of some basics. Like for example, using the entire scrum framework, as opposed to just cherry picking little pieces of it <laughs> to say that you're now scrum or agile, if you will. Yeah. And, and I feel like there was a, a sentence in the purpose of the Scrum Guide section that really resonated with me, and mainly because this has been such a soft spot for the people I've, I've engaged with. It says changing the core design or ideas of Scrum, leaving out elements or not following the rules of Scrum covers up problems and limits the benefit of Scrum, potentially even rendering it useless. To me, that sentence just leaped off the page to me because it's so true and it's so common in my. So you're you're in the all in or not at all. Well, I feel like Scrum's strength is revealing problems. Okay. Like if you yeah. take pieces out of it, you're doing exactly what this sentence says. You're covering up problems. Okay. It's usually psychologically, why we omit parts of Scrum? Because we don't want to see our dirty line. Yeah, people don't like to look at the smelly rag on the floor. <laughs> exactly. But, okay, so so yes and, but, um, that's my version of it. Uh, I, I agree with that. And I also feel like these are just tools, right? And you <laughs> use the tools you need in any given situation. And most of the places that I run across, they're not – there's so much organizational change that has to occur to be able to do this. 
mm-hmm. that even being able to have a daily scrum is like huge. And if they're not doing the rest of it, I'm like, just make one step. I mean, sure. isn't that enough for right now? Or let's just find, for example, in when I do scrum, I use a traditional risk register because I find it's helpful. You right? just get people sweats on that, by the way. Well, Both. there's, th- but we each have our own way. And that's the whole idea with this framework is it's meant to be adjusted. Yeah. Um, so that's, I guess that part, I'm sort of of two minds with it. I, I agree with it and I don't want to agree with it. I've always felt like a framework is kind of like an automobile, right? Uh, if you want to steer it, there's a tool for that. It's called the steering wheel. If you want right. to accelerate, there's another tool. If you want to brake, there's another tool. But the direction you go in is up to you. And the speed at which you travel is up to you. That's that's what a framework means to me. Starting off scrum would be like, and cherry picking little things that you want to do and not want to do would be like driving a car that doesn't have a steering wheel. You get very little value out of it. My My feeling is, if you stop laughing at me, sorry, <laughs> we forgot to turn the video off before we started recording so we can see each other. And I'm thinking about something you just said and laughing. So I'll, I'll save it though. Go ahead. <laughs> so I feel like I've always been a proponent of the opposite approach. Try it in its pure form first, right? Then change what doesn't work for you after you fully understand what it actually is. Because I feel like if you think about Shuhari, that, that you know, development of a master uh, going from amateur to sort of intermediate to master, the problem a lot of companies face is they start at ha. They're trying to change something before they truly understand what it right. is, what the benefits are. So that's why this sentence really stuck out to me because it's like, I know what you're saying. Hey, try something little that will. No, 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 no. I totally agree with the do it in the pure way, but I, and do it all the way and then find out what you can subtract. Exactly. But I don't have any problem with people subtracting stuff except for the retrospective if they find that it's not valuable. And I think there's, there are those who would argue with even that statement that you just said, except the retrospective. I had a student last week. who was like, do you have to do a retrospective after every single sprint? I mean, it doesn't seem like we my need class. <laughs> Like, well, if you want to pass the test and keep me happy, then yes, you have to. But at the same time, I feel like companies, I think there some some of them are more interested in saying that they are quote unquote agile and are using Scrum yeah. than they are actually doing it. Or getting the benefits of it. Exactly. Yeah. So I was thinking about the car thing. And I totally agree with you. And then I think about every time I go to Atlanta and it's like the turn signals, no offense to the people of Atlanta, but every time I'm there, it's like the turn signals are there as an accessory that's like there for your pleasure if you feel like using it. And (laughs) the cars still operate, people still get where they want to go. But there's lots of things that it's just like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Um, And we have things like that, like, you know, how you estimate or whatever, where it's just dealer's choice. But um, so what is something you feel has to be kept? Like what has to be done for Scrum to work? Well, I've always felt like the sprint goal was something important. Um, I, well, you know, okay. So actually we're getting to something, what has to be kept. Uh, we're getting into something that did challenge my comfortability a little bit. And that was how the Scrum roles were sort of changed into accountabilities. Yeah, that word is used 800% more times in this version of the document than it was last time it was once, here it's eight. Uh, and, and the word accountabilities just makes my skin crawl a little bit. <laughs> well, because, uh, you know, I, I actually, I think I saw a podcast between you and Ron Jeffries done 100 years ago. Yeah. 
And and Ron first thing I thought of. Yeah, Ron said something about how teams don't hold each other accountable. So so the, they lift uh, each other up. I said to Ron, shouldn't we hold each other accountable? And Ron, if you don't know Ron, he's a little bit brusque sometimes. He's he's not he's not like a very huggy guy. And the he turned to me and said, No, they shouldn't hold each other accountable. They should hold each other up. And I was like, Oh my God, that is the sweetest, kindest thing I've ever heard you say. And spot on. Yep. I think I saw that five years ago and it that was the first thing I thought of when I read the new scrum guide was yeah. Ron must not really care for that language. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So can we stick with that for a second? Sure. All right. So I have two sentences here that are highlighted that, and when I look at this, I mean, I, I'm glad that they're inspecting and adapting. And I think that's always good. And, and even if this uncovers things that I find discomfort with, I don't think that's bad. I think I have to adjust and I'll teach whatever it is. Um, I do want to test some of this stuff out, but there's a part of my brain that's always looking for escape hatches for project managers. Like one little door that says, oh, I can control that. I can run that. I can make that do what I want. And I see the phrase, the scrum master is accountable for the team's effectiveness. Mm -hmm. Now I have a feeling I understand the intention behind it, but I also have been around way too many people who are unable to use the word accountable without the word hold in front of it or held in front of it. Yeah. And in those kind of organizations, if the scrum master is held accountable for the team's effectiveness, then it is the scrum master's job to run the team right. as efficiently and, you know, as, as they can make them faster, yep. um, which sounds like a project man, like a traditional bad, like bad actor project manager. Well, and I think that sentence on page six, right after scrum master, there's another sentence right after that that equally makes my skin crawl. Yeah. <laughs> by enabling the Scrum yep. team to improve its practices within the Scrum framework, I, you know, there's a difference between enabling and empowering. And enabling is is not where I would want to go. I'd want to empower okay. the team to control its own destiny, uh, and in, in you know, behave in a way that lets them know we are in a psychologically safe environment. I, I'm not about enabling anybody to do anything. That, that feels lazy to me. So uh, that sentence bugs me as well, but yeah, if, if I'm a new scrum master and I read this sentence, I'm thinking I'm a project manager. I'm thinking I have to go in and run things because it's my head on the chopping block if it fails. This to me doesn't promote team cohesion, that one sentence that you pointed out. And so I'll, I'll go on further on that. Um, Judith Lassiter, the lady who wrote What We Say Matters, I was doing an interview with her one time and she asked me what I did. And I said, you know, I explained it to her and I said, and I, I help people enable teams. And she started to laugh at me. And I'm like, how is it that you're this guru of nonviolent communication? And you're, you're not laughing with me. You're laughing at my expense. And she said, those people were already empowered. You were the only one who decided they weren't. Wow. Yeah. Right. And so that to, uh, put up against an alien, it's like, it's one deeper thing. And the servant leader has gone too. Which a lot of people I think are probably pretty happy about, but how do you feel about that? I, I don't like that. Um, I feel like scrum master, well, one thing that, that this does say, and it's the sentence right after the two we've just been griping about, scrum masters are true leaders who serve the scrum team and, and the large organization. Yeah. I, I like that sentence, but I don't like the, it's not addition by subtraction for me. It's servant leadership is to me, part of the core of being a scrum master. It's also something that, in the management folks that I've worked with, it's about turning them into servant leaders in my mind, because 
that org chart, as Jeff Sutherland likes to say, gets flipped upside down. The teams yeah. are at the top and the CEOs at the bottom. And how can we serve the teams better? Yeah. So the fact that servant leaders gone is, is troubling for me. So I feel I feel like we need to pause for a second because we're picking at words and stuff. And I'm sure these guys spend an ocean amount of time. Yeah, if they're um, listening right now, they're eye rolling probably. Yeah, I'm sure they shut it off already. But um, <laughs> but I mean, I am I'm glad that they're making changes. I'm glad that they're improving. It's just there's things about it that I'm like, eh, that makes me nervous. And I don't think they're what you just said. Like scrum masters are true leaders who serve the scrum team in a large organization. Absolutely, totally, hundred percent agree with that. But I'm again looking at it kind of cockeyed, thinking like, how are people going to misread that or abuse that phrase and make it turn into what they want? Right. And which isn't a very healthy psychological space to be in either. <laughs> if you're looking at everything, like, how can I twist this? Okay. Well, speaking of misusing and abusing, uh, let's go back to page five, shall we? Okay. So paragraph three, if scrum teams become too large. Those of you following along at home who are obsessively holding a scrum guide and redlining it. Go ahead. Last sentence. Therefore, or actually, uh, where is it? You should read the paragraph. Okay, the whole paragraph. The scrum team is small enough to remain nimble and large enough to complete significant work within a sprint. Nothing new there. Typically 10 or fewer people. We're getting larger now. Uh, in general, we found that smaller teams communicate better and more productive. I like that. If scrum teams become too large, they should consider reorganizing into multiple cohesive scrum teams, each focused on the same product. Then, therefore, they should share the same product goal, product backlog, and product owner. So to me, that sentence suggests we are now advocating product owners be product owners multiple. for multiple scrum teams. Well, and, and your sizing thing isn't off. If that's true, then you still have a scrum master plus nine. So the, ca okay. the top, top boundary is still there. The low boundary is gone. But yeah, product owner on multiple teams. Yeah. I, and I mean, yes, I know in the real world that happens. And I, I also feel like if you do the product owner job exceedingly well, it would be difficult to do it exceedingly well for more than one team. It also kind of goes in the face of my, one of my favorite videos by Heinrich Nieberg, the product owner in a nutshell video. Do you, have you ever seen that video? Once or twice. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he talks about <laughs> Once or twice a week for the yeah. past 10 years. Oh boy. So he talks about how the product backlog is somewhat uh, a misnomer and that it's more of a team backlog and that you can have multiple products represented in a single team backlog. Some are maintenance level work for one product the team created, then they're working on new product development for a new product they've created and how it can all be a mixed match. And the product owner has to make trade-offs within maybe multiple products in a single backlog. So I, I saw the logic in Heinrich's presentation there. And I think it's true in real world. There's a lot of, and think of the cost. If you have a team that built a product yeah. and then they transition off of that product to build another product. And now there's another team that's maintaining Oh, that's a part of Heinrich's video I disagree with, but yeah, I get it. I get what you're saying. It's, it's just very costly to now get a new team up to speed on maintaining something that another team built. Unless it was built with that intention. That's true. But that's, I mean, depending on the size of the product, you could be introducing a lot of learning curve and complexity there. So, so are you, I can't tell what you're fighting for here. You're fighting for one product owner on multiple things, or you're saying we should... I'm, I feel like the, the optimal scenario is one product owner for one scrum team. Yeah. That's what I feel in general. Okay. I agree. I want to explain why I think that. 
If I have a product owner for two teams, whether they're maintaining one product or not, when one of those teams goes into a ditch, they get all my focus and I abandon the other team. So that puts them at greater risk for failure. I also think the job itself, it's so massive. I mean, like you said, if you're doing it well, if you're really focused on staying in sync with the stakeholders and the customer and the team and answering all the questions and creating enough work to keep, if it's two teams, 18 people busy all the time and staying two to three sprints ahead of them, that's just too much to do. And the cognitive load has got to be exhausting. So that it just, it's, it adds risk that you don't need to add maybe. And at the same time, if I was a product owner, I'm constrained by the fact that I only have one team that can do work. If I have two, that gives me a lot more options in terms of delivering value, maybe. So the, 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 there's the counter argument you're making. Yeah, I'm, I'm fighting for both sides at once. That's the way I feel about a lot of this thing. <laughs> so if I was a PO, I'd be like, yeah, that's cool. But still, how am I going to do my job? And if I can't have a product owner team, which I still can't, according to the Scrum Guide, then I don't know. I mean, I don't know if these people don't sleep or what. Like, how do you have enough hours in the day to do all the work? And one of the one of the things I commonly get in classes, though, we do a, a backlog refinement simulation in my product owner class, and I'll ask this question, and it's usually met with a resounding yes from most, if not all, of the students. Have you ever been in a backlog refinement session where questions are being asked of the product owner, and the answer you get is, "I don't know. I'll have to go check." Okay, when the development team's asking questions like that, and the product owner gets you know, gives those answers. Right. This backlog refinement now becomes a complete waste of time for the development team and the product owner doesn't have the answers they need. Well, why is that? And typically the response we get after doing a five why exercise is the product owner also has a day job. They yeah, have, they have not a job too. They're not a full-time product owner, right? And because they're not a full-time product owner, they don't know what they need to know to properly serve the development team. Well, even if they are, they might be really deep in the business side and shallow on the technical side or vice versa. I mean, they may not understand all the underpinnings of changing data things this way or that way or whatever. And I wouldn't expect them to or really want them to because I want them to be an expert in the customer. Well, right. And to do that, you have to talk to the customer or many customers often yeah. throughout every sprint. Not only that, but you're, think about it. You're curating the backlog. You're, 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 intimately familiar with every PBI in there. You, you've got to understand the, the outcomes we're looking for on behalf of the customer on everything. Yeah, It's a brutally hard job to do because there's a lot of work involved. I think to do it expertly and, and superbly for more than one team is a real big challenge. So do you find any solace in the fact that, um, I'll refer to the page number as you were doing previously on page six, it says the product owner can do the work or delegate the responsibility to others. Um, I never liked the word delegate. Feels to me like a hierarchy there. You uh, do my thing. Exactly. Yeah. Not a big fan of the delegate thing, but I think ask for help. Sure. Absolutely. Well, uh, I know of a PO who refuses to create product backlog items. Really? They have other people do that for them. They, they, they can't dirty their hands with that kind of plebeian work. Is anybody we know that we have to make fun no, of? You know, nobody you know. Okay. I don't know them personally. I know of them. Okay. <laughs> I know that they exist at a place that I work with. And so, yeah, they could say like you, you know, BA, do my thing for me. And, and the BA is, you know, okay. Um, but they're still accountable. I don't know. That, it just, that makes me nervous. Yeah. 
It feels like we're getting away from the spirit of Scrum, which is this team focus. The us thing. Yeah. There's, there's another one that makes me a little nervous here as well. Um, page nine, Dave. Paragraph 200, Daily Scrum. <clears throat> All right. You're going to love Gentlemen this. from Boston will be recognized. Page it's, nine. Go ahead. <laughs> you're going to love this one. If the product owner or Scrum master are actively working on items in the sprint backlog, they participate as the developers ah. in the Daily Scrum. Okay. Hold my on. Don't even finish I, this part. Wait, no, wait, no, no, wait, no. It's, it's I got, I got the backstory for this. I know why this is here, I think. Because okay. my wife read this and she was like, oh, this is the story that you tell about Jeff. So at the Agile conference last summer, um, I got to the booth to do the podcast early one day and I saw Jeff, he was just sitting there and I went up to him and I'm like, Jeff, I have a question for you. And um, I was asking about the daily scrum and so you never specifically say that the scrum master has to be there. So what's the deal with that? And he said, well, in my company, the scrum master, the product owner would have to have a really good reason for not being there. And I was like, okay, cool. And he said, because they have to report on their tasks. And my head dropped and I was like, all right. Like, I just figured like, eat, whatever, you know, I don't know what skipped the gears there, but I started to walk away. I thanked him and I started to walk away and he called me back and he said, he has the PO and the scrum master put their work on the board. So the team has visibility into the work that they're doing. And I was like, well, damn, that's awesome. Yeah. So that part of it, I really like that. I am equally concerned with you about the idea of the scrum master signing up for work in, in lieu of becoming a scrum master. Well, it, it's interesting because the language we use here or they use here is actively working on items in the sprint backlog. If you go back to sprint planning, they talk about the sprint backlog is now a composition of three things. It is why are we doing the sprint? So our sprint goal, which that's part of the sprint backlog now. And then of course, what PBIs are going to be worked on and then how they're decomposed. What's, what's the plan going to be in order to meet the sprint goal. Um, that's how the sprint backlog is defined. And I think that's a slippery slope. If you talk about the product owner or scrum master having stuff within that sprint backlog. Yeah. So they're clearly defining that the sprint backlog is about meeting the sprint goal and everything involved in doing that. If the product owner or scrum master has tasks related to meeting the sprint goal, that feels like a slippery slope to me. Yeah, it invites a lot of the potential for bad behavior. I mean, hopefully people will behave responsibly with all this. I guess it's maybe not fair to assume bad intent. I'm curious about the sprint goal thing and the product goal thing, because I'm still struggling with getting my head around this. But if we say that what's in the sprint backlog is the sprint goal, but the then sprint also part of the sprint backlog. Right, it's like this thing that's part of itself. So. I've always thought of the sprinkle as the reason, like we have Thanksgiving dinner in order to get together as a family and enjoy each other's company and reconnect eating Turkey and mashed potatoes. Those are activities that are part of achieving that goal, mm -hmm. but I don't understand how the goal becomes, I mean, like, how is that part of the activities? I don't know. I mean, are, are we actually keeping them all together in one thing? It is part of itself. According to the Scrum Guide, yeah. Okay. So here's here's what where I get concerned is that when I'm teaching this stuff, getting people to understand the sprinkle is I find maybe I'm just not good at teaching that part of it, but you always leave a lot to be desired. But you know, <laughs> um, it's a thing that either snaps them in immediately for people, or they just it's just, they struggle with it for a while, and then eventually I know that they do get it, but. Um, 
if I'm having trouble explaining it as you have all the stuff in the sprint backlog and the sprinkle explains why it's all there. Okay. But now I'm saying it's why it's all there and it's part of it itself. It's like a snake that eats itself. I don't understand where it ends. Yeah. Well, I mean, if maybe this will help a little bit when we're talking about sprint planning here in the scrum guide, it says topic one, why is this sprint valuable? It's almost like a cover page to a resume for me. Okay. So, so why is this sprint valuable? First topic of sprint planning now. Okay. I, I can get on board with that. And I think, you know, when you assemble around a goal, I think that has a, a strong, uh, a strong push toward team collective ownership and, and teamwork. So, okay. okay. Why are we doing the sprint? What, what are we trying to accomplish? I love and then, and then what things from the backlog will help us achieve that. There you go. And then how do we break those down into an actionable plan? Okay. And I also like, that makes how, sense. I also like how they're, they're, when they're talking about number three, um, uh, where is it? Okay. So topic three, how will the chosen work get done? There's one thing in here that I really liked, which was, uh, this is often done by decomposing PBIs into smaller work items of one day or less. Yeah. And I really like that idea of tasks that are decomposed from PBIs being really trying to make them one day or less for the mere fact that, I mean, Dave, have you ever had a to-do list for yourself? <laughs> Every day. Okay. How do you feel when you cross something off that list? I feel good. Yeah. It's like motivated, empowered, I put enabled, stuff on, I, I put stuff on committed. I've already done just so I can cross it off. Right. Yeah. So if we're encouraging development teams to break things down to that level, I'm very happy about that. It's going to give them that feeling of accomplishment, hopefully daily. And also I found that the more granular tasks are, the more opportunity for collaboration gets discovered among teammates. So do you think then that teams have to do that? Like Troy Lightfoot has a story he tells about a team where they didn't, they didn't ever task anything out. They would just bring the PBIs in, commit to them and swarm on them. And, and they always met their commitment. Well, I think that, the, the last version of the Scrum Guide had language in there that I liked about that, which was in sprint planning, we test them out to the level that we know. And then we allow for the fact that as the sprint goes, we're probably going to come up with more tasks and yeah. more things. And I think that gets back into, there's only so much that's knowable before you start doing this work. So I like that, but I, I really like this idea of one day or less, no matter how you get there, yeah. whether you're asking on the fly or whether you're tasking at sprint planning, it's, it's fundamentally sound to me. Well, and it also, it probably leans towards crossing some of that distance between some of the stuff that happens with safe and pointing and, and you know, Ron and his original story pointing ideas and stuff like that. And the fact that we want to see progress on the board and it'll keep the daily scrum valuable if everybody's got updates every single day. Right. I mean, it has like echoes. That's, that's the thing with this guide. If you're reading it, there's a lot of subtle language things that don't seem like a big deal, but they all have echoes that ripple throughout behavior. Yep. And given that some of this stuff was, you know, different before and people found ways to bend the rules, I think that's, at least that's what I worry about. So the, other, the other intangible there, and I love the echoes term. I, I think that's really appropriate. The other intangible there too is when you're talking about a cross-functional team and they swarm on a PBI to decompose it and create a bunch of tasks, the more granular the tasks are, that means more conversation happened. And the more conversation that happens in a cross-functional team, the more one specialty learns from another specialty. Yeah. The more collective ownership they have. You bet. And I think there's, there then begins to build some curiosity too, that leads to more conversations. I guess, 
I almost wish it was down to the level they need to, to understand whether or not they can complete it. Like, I don't really want to tell them, like, I can, I can, if I had started out with what you just said, I would have been creating a work breakdown structure and a Gantt chart for every single thing in every sprint. I know. <laughs> assigning, <laughs> and assigning the workout to people. Yes. Because um, that's the level that I was taught was necessary. But, but it's also very possible that as we, as you and I become more and more antiquated, that there's <laughs> younger people now who uh, I taught people this weekend who, who are still in school and they never heard a waterfall before. Isn't that great? They had no barrier to this. It was like the easiest thing in the world to teach it to them because they didn't have to break through anything to get there. Absolutely. I'm I'm starting to see a big trend for that lately as well. And that's encouraging. Um, I I think that this whole thing is, there there are good parts to the scrum guide that I think are really great. And there are parts that just make me question things. But, you know, one thing I do like about it overall is just, it it feels more conversational to me. I wanted to, one of the things I want to ask about is what is your favorite part of the scrum guide? And I'll go first. So you have a time to find the page where yours is written. Um, so for, for, if you're listening, we've tried this like four times. Um, my favorite part, even though I'm not, there's things about it. I'm still a little queasy about, but I really like the fact that it says the product uh, when it talks about the artifacts, right? For the product backlog, we have the product goal, the sprint backlog, we have the sprint goal, the increment, we have the definition of done. I'm still very uncomfortable with the, with the way the word commitment is used in this document, but I really like the connection between those things and specifically the, the done being part of the increment. Um, that that creates some parallels there that I'm hoping will make it easier for people to get their heads around. That was actually my favorite part as well, not to cheat, but it was. The problem I have though, is some of the language around definition of done. I am I believe that the two most important parts of Scrum, frankly, are self-organization now called self-management and the definition of done. I don't believe you can really do Scrum exceedingly well without either one of those things. And to me, one of the big changes here one of the big things that stood out to me here was the fact that the scrum team creates the definition of done. I've always thought of the definition of done as developer driven. I've oh, really? The definition of done as the standard of excellence that they themselves create when they're building PBIs and hold themselves to. I felt like the de- definition of done. But you would also say that done and shippable are the same thing, right? Say it again, please. Done and shippable are the same thing, right? Are supposed to be the same thing. Well, you know, it's interesting. I've always felt like you need two different perspectives to call something shippable. Okay. One is it's got to be built right. That's definition of done. And number two, it's got to be the right thing. And that's acceptance criteria or product owner's perspective. So. Okay. Me, okay. Go ahead. So Go ahead. I feel like when the, when the development team says this thing is built awesome, we, yeah. we tested the bejesus out of it. It's been, the code's been written solid. The infrastructure is great. They believe it's done. Now sort of the, the eye test is the product owner saying, yeah, I agree with you or no, I don't. This isn't what the customer wants. Have a look at the acceptance criteria. Check it again. I feel like it's got to pass both of those before it's potentially shippable. Okay. So you've determined that there's zero bejesuses in your uh, system now. Because you tested the bejesuses out of it. score is zero, yes. Um, but what about stuff like um, support documentation or Sarbox review or ITIL audit or ISO audit or something like that? Like that that has to happen 
it does. But it doesn't really fall under dev necessarily. Well, technically, it might. Uh, might okay. You've got. Let's put it this way: if you're talking about creating the technical specifications for something after it's been built to to the standards, I think a lot of teams what they'll do is make part of their definition of done that we've updated the documentation for whatever. Okay. Uh, put it this way, any team I've ever worked with has had that in their definition of done at a strong suggestion. Okay. So, but I, I always want to try to make development teams feel like they control the standard of quality because what that does is it creates buy-in. Huh. Now, okay. obviously organizations, many of them will have their own standards that we must meet. And that's sort of your baseline. Your definition of done begins here. You have yeah. to meet standards. But what else would you do? If this were a product you were building for yourself, what else would you bake into it in terms of quality? And when you spark a development team with a basically a, a permission to get crazy detailed, they tend to thrive and feed off of that. Okay, I get that. It's interesting to me that you said that because I always think of what I always say is that the PO is the last line of defense in quality. Like it, they're the one that they have to make sure the quality is there. And I agree with you, the dev team, absolutely. But to me, if the thing ships broke, that's the PO's fault, regardless okay. of who tested what. I think in, a, in an organization where you're self-organizing, if you're truly self-organizing, if you have a development team that created a defect, no one's going to feel more angry about that than them. And they're going to want to make sure they double down. I mean, I remember I had a team, it was in like sprint 60 or something like that. It was a crazy team that had been together for a long time and they had a defect escape their sprint and they were absolutely mortified. How did we miss that? Retrospective comes along. I asked the question, how did we miss that? And one developer says, you know what? I was thinking about this over dinner last night. Like really? You were thinking about this over dinner last night. Most people check out when they go home and they stop thinking about this stuff. But this developer was so darn engaged. Yeah. He said, he said you know, no, I think if we if we modify our tests to do this as well, we probably would have caught that. And right then and there in the retrospective, they, they added that to definition done and kept moving forward. So that's a team that's engaged. That's yeah, I was just going to say that that's a team that's definitely very, very in on doing this stuff and getting better, which is the culture that the Scrum Master hopefully is able to create or provide or foster or whatever. Uh, cool. So uh, if you haven't had a chance to check out the 2020 Scrum Guide, you can go to scrumguides.org. Um, Eric, if these people want to get in touch with you and ask you more questions or ask you what a bejesus is, what is the best way for them to reach? <laughs> All right. So my website is called sustainedagility.com. And you can find my info there. And I'm always happy to get all scrummy with anybody who wants to talk about this stuff. That sounded dirty. Um, he, <laughs> so your courses are all listed there as well as on the Scrum Alliance website. No, well. no, I'm too lazy to do that. So uh, yeah, you got to go to the Scrum Alliance. Oh, wow. All right. Classes, but that's actually, I've got an update coming to my website pretty soon. That's going to take care of that. So cool. All right, man. Thank you very much Thanks, Dave. for taking time out. I hope you have a safe and healthy and socially distant masked <laughs> Thanksgiving. Same to you and yours. You want to give a shout out to your pathetic football team? Before we go? Well, this is maybe the first time in history, Dave, that both our football teams are terrible <laughs> and have sub 500 <laughs> records. So let's just say go Tampa Bay. <laughs> All right, cool. Thanks, man. 